Welcome back to our culture series on the colony of New Netherland. Now, in our last episode, we covered all of the government institutions, from the director general of the colony down to the local courts. We saw some strange court cases, and we learned that people back then were quite different than people today. In this episode, I would first like to cover what everyday life was like for the non-political figures, the non-influential figures. What is it like for a normal person in the colony of New Netherland? Now, that question is probably impossible to answer and probably impossible to put into your mind. Because if you listen to the last episode, which I encourage you to do, because otherwise this episode will make little sense to you, I talked about how, given any 10-year period in the history of New Netherland, you have a completely different different experience, a completely different makeup of what the colony looks like. What's the population? What's the predominant language? It changes decade to decade. It's, it's night and day. So I'm going to make some generalities about uh, what people did for a living, uh, games they might have played, relations with Native Americans, and so on and so forth, and take all of it with a grain of salt. Because uh, most of the information we have for just the casual living existence of the colony come from the last couple years. So we're talking the early 1660s. Everything is completely written by men. Uh, Women in New Netherland didn't have the diary uh, and journal writing tradition that the women of New England had at this time and, and especially far later. And so we don't have primary sources from very many women. And most of the surviving documents aren't personal in nature. They're business-related. The ones that have survived to this modern point in time have to deal with the uh, ins and outs of the Dutch West India Company, the governance of the director generals. They're not personal reflections. You don't see a lot of personal feelings. You see a little hints of it here and there. In an earlier episode, I did an entire radio drama version of the Indo-Mohawk Country by Harmon van der Bogart. You see a little bit of his personality there. And then there's a couple other little writers... Uh, especially when I talk about Willem Keith, If you go back to that episode, you can really hear the anger in their words. But the Dutch writer, writers at the time, first of all, they're uh, out on the fringes of what they considered civilization. They were colonists. They were businessmen, fur traders, navigators. They weren't writers like you, you would see today. They're not chroniclers. They're not journalists. And the Dutch, during the Dutch Golden Age, they weren't particularly well-known for their verbal expression. So England and the English language have left a a huge amount of poetry and writing that has inspired the world. So has France, so has many other nations. But the Germanic nations, aside from the English-speaking world, are not particularly known, and I know I'm going to offend some people here, not particularly known for being emotive and expressive in their writings. So that's where we are. That being said, in this desert of personality that we have to sift through to see what these people were really feeling and thinking, there is an anthology. It's called the Anthology of New Netherland, sometimes called the Anthology of New Netherlands, wrongly. It came out a very long time ago, and it documented these early Dutch poets who were writing about New Netherland. I believe it was put out by Henry C. Murphy. If I'm not wrong, uh, yeah, Henry C. Murphy, I believe, is the man who put out this collection, and it's translated into English. And mostly, the the poetry we see coming out of New Netherland is being commissioned by various benefactors, some some portion of the Dutch West India Company or the Amsterdam Chamber, to write poems uh, making New, ne- New Netherland look great and encourage immigration to the colony. So it's uh, commercial in nature and bias and possibly untruthful. And to be honest, because I've read the book, the poetry, when translated into English, is terrible. It's awful. It's so bad. I'm going to read a little bit of it. I found the best piece. I found the one section of poetry in the entire 200-something page book that I found palatable. And I'm going to read it to you just so you can get a little bit of experience of, of artistic output Uh, from New Netherland, for which we have so little. The Praise of New Netherland, dedicated to the Honorable Cornelius Van Ruyven, Counselor and Secretary of the Honorable West India Company there, faithful and very upright promoter of New Netherland. With sharpened pen and wit, one's tunes he lays to sing the vanity of fame and praise, 
his moping thoughts bewildering in amaze. In darkness wander, what brings disgrace? What constitutes a wrong? These form the burden of tuneful song. And honor saved, his senses then among the dark holes ponder. For me, it is a nobler theme I sing. New Netherland springs forth my heroine. Where Amstel folk did erst their people bring, and still they flourish. New Netherland, thou noblest spot of earth, where bounteous heaven ever poureth forth the fullness of his gifts, of greatest worth, mankind to nourish. Now that's not bad, but I, that's really the best of it. From all these various authors, that's the best of it that got translated into English anyway. And, well, obviously, if you could tell by the dedication, this was bought and paid for by the Dutch West India Company to encourage immigration. But it's okay. It, it's passable. It works. And then, other than what I've already mentioned, the literary heritage of New Netherland, uh, the, one of the best examples would be Adrian van der Donk, who we talked about before. He's a big, big portion of Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto, New York Times bestseller. Van der Donk's description of New Netherland and some of his other little bits of pieces of writing they remain readable to this day in the English translations, and that's something you might want to check out if you're interested in primary sources. So that's the literary angle on New Netherland. What about music? This is a question I had many years ago. I actually emailed the New Netherland Institute, yeah, the New Netherland Institute, and it got forward to the great Charles Gehring, I believe, if my memory serves me correct. And, I, and the email asked, are there any sources mentioning music? in New Netherland. What type of songs, uh, how is it performed, what instruments were performed, or anything mentioning native music. And the response was just a resounding no. Again, the documentation is heavy on business matters, on government, military issues, and court issues. We don't know exactly what the sound of music was in New Netherland. We don't even know if anyone was singing anything. Uh, we can assume they were, but we don't know. It's an unknown. It's one of those tree-falling-in-the-forest situations. At best, you can take a leap of, of faith and say, well, whatever music, whatever folk traditions were coming out of the ports in the Netherlands probably made up a good chunk of the music being sung in New Netherland. But that's the best we can do for you. And as I mentioned, we can definitely talk about commerce. There's plenty of records of that. The business of New Netherland was business. Very similar to New York State today. Uh, a similar sort of mantra. Early in the colony's history, of course, overwhelmingly, the Europeans in the area were involved in the fur trade. And all throughout its history, actually, the fur trade remained very important. But early on, it was just fur traders. They were, those were the only people willing to fling themselves to this barely known portion of the New World for the European mind. And of course, you already know this if you listen to the previous episodes in this series. But early on, trade goods would be considered almost worthless trinkets to Europeans. But for the native population, which didn't have the ability to refine iron, especially, anything that was metal was incredibly valuable and offered a huge advantage. Meanwhile, the furs that the Native Americans had, they had an abundance. And everybody had furs. And everybody's tribe had great hunters furs were worthless to them. Not completely worthless, but they were very common. They lined the floors. They lined the bodies of the people. They were everywhere. And so Europeans show up and they have this wonderful material that you can reuse and reshape that can be far more deadly than stone and bone when used on a, as an arrow tip or as a sword or as a axe. And yet, what did they want for it? They wanted the stuff that the Native Americans literally covered the floor of their longhouses with. So this was a win-win. Early in the colony of New Netherland and New France and other American colonies, uh, the fur trade was incredibly important, and the Native Americans were very willing to get rid of that fur. Please check out the previous episodes in this series for a lot more detail into that. But the old stereotype of the Native American being cheated out of uh, their possessions for a small, worthless pieces of nothing. That is a stereotype. That is not generally true, especially in the colony of New Netherland, and especially if you go up further north to New France, which may or may not be the subject of next season of this podcast. In fact, as the colony developed, 
Eventually, New Netherland relinquished its monopoly over the fur trade. Anyone could come in and trade fur, as long as you paid a little tax on the way out. And business had to be conducted in public, because New Netherland, at least the, the director generals of New Netherland, and the Dutch West India Company, and the Amsterdam Chamber, they were all very concerned with uh, private, private traders cheating the Native Americans. Because this would spoil the relationship and effectively kill the colony. If the furs don't come in, the colony's dead, especially the earlier you go. And so the European authorities in the area were very concerned that the Native Americans not be cheated. One way private cheaters would often uh, cheat their way into cheaper trades with Native Americans is to get them drunk. And as we talked about in our episode on the Esopus, Native American culture hadn't tangled with alcohol up until this point. Before the transatlantic trade, before the Colombian exchange, alcohol was not a thing Native Americans had. And so their culture had nothing, they had no parallel with it, no way of dealing with it, no social structure in place for understanding what alcoholism is or, or what it can do to people or in a community. That being said, neither did European culture. The records are full of what we would consider today alcoholics. Everyone was drinking and there's no surprise, it was a far more violent time. But skipping far ahead, as the colony grew, there were a lot of different things a man could do to make a living. And we'll talk about gender roles, because it was mostly men doing the commerce, or at least legally in charge of the commerce. Now, as the colony grew, you would need all sorts of other amenities, as farmers were eventually planted in different places, and they spread out, and then you would need people to help them make horseshoes. You would need blacksmiths. You would need people who would be willing to ship their crops down, down to New Amsterdam and out probably to the Caribbean. And so that requires sailors and navigators, all sorts of people like that. Also, huge industry in New Netherland, distilleries and breweries. Booze was everywhere. At one point, uh, New Amsterdam, a third of the buildings had some sort of brewery or still in them. And Peter Stuyvesant was like, okay, we need, to, we need to bring this down a little bit. And although it was illegal to sell alcohol to Native Americans, it happened all the time. It was one of the major causes of the First Espus War. So again, we started with the fur traders. And these aren't like the French fur traders who went into the hinterland. They would stay at, let's say, Fort Orange, especially early on, or Fort Nassau, right in the, on an island in the Hudson River. And the Native Americans would come to them. The Dutch, they're lowlanders, right? The Netherlands, lowlands. They would stay in these nice little cozy river valleys. And the Native Americans would bring the furs right to them pretty convenient for the European, but also it was pretty convenient for the Native American tribe that controlled the area around the trading post. And the upper part of the colony, the Mohawk, of course, would push out the Mohegan and take over the entire area around Fort Orange. And tribes could only trade at Fort Orange either through the Mohawk or with permission from the Mohawk, including other tribes in the Haudenosaunee Confederation, the Iroquois Confederation. So even their own allies had to deal with the Mohawk, and that's going to cause some friction. And we'll talk about that in our upcoming episode on the second round of the Beaver Wars. Farmers would be the next profession to move in in force. And the Dutch West Indian Company wanted to plant farmers especially so the colony could be self-sufficient. And they also wanted these big rural farm families to have children and, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill in the colony so that the English from the east and the south don't overrun the place. And from this point on, with the growing and shrinking of the colony over and over again, based on Native American conflicts, eventually you get all these other professions, more specialized, to fill in all the needs. And soon, uh, by the 1660s, you had a thriving colony, a family colony, many scholars call it, where there were steady families. There was a relative balance in the, uh, the male-female ratio. So it was a growing, stable colony. Whereas if you go back 30, 40 years, it was male dominated. There weren't a lot of women, mostly traders, a lot of people who look to make money and go back home. It wasn't a bedroom community, so to speak. And as I mentioned in our previous episode with the influx of population, you have the complete changeover of what the, the lingua franca of the colony was, what the common language was. Very early on, of course, there would be Dutch traders, but mixed in with them would be the occasional rogue French trader or English trader. And then, of course, most of the people who would live in the territory that would be known as New Netherland were Native Americans, who in this part of North America either spoke a language belonging to the Iroquois family tree or the Algonquin family tree. But the first farming communities, as you learned in a previous episode, were 
uh, Walloon. They were from Wallonia in what is now Belgium. And they were French-speaking. And Peter Minuet was also a French-speaking man. And so there was a time when the colony of New Netherland, most of the Europeans in that colony, by by far most, spoke French. This French-speaking New Netherland was slowly overwhelmed by Dutch speakers as the decades wore on. Many of these Walloons, they moved away, and many stayed, and some have probably millions of descendants today. But it wasn't just Dutch moving in. Around the beginning of the 1660s, there was a push to just get any anyone to move there who would be loyal to the Dutch. And so people observed in New Amsterdam, they'd walk around and in five, 10 minutes, they'd notice they'd hear 12 different languages, 13 different languages, 14 different languages. New Amsterdam was a, a cosmopolitan city, much like New York is today. So how can I even begin to generalize anything about this colony that is so diverse and changes every decade? This is truly the beginning of the American melting pot. Now, if you go to New England at this time, you have a bunch of small colonies, and those small colonies are mostly inhabited by English people, by far, by far, 95 plus percent at this point in time. And those English people are uh, majority Puritan and different versions of Puritan. And they're, they all hate each other. And each colony is slightly suspect of one another. And they're incredibly narrow-minded. And they live in their bubble. And they're all kind of the same thing. Now, I know people are going to get mad at me saying that. But if you compare them to what's going on in New Amsterdam or New Netherland, it, it, it's night and day. In one, you have majority one ethnic group who have large majorities of people who think the exact same things about religion. And then in this other colony, although there is one official religion, we're going to come to find out that there's a whole lot more going on in that department. You have tons of different languages. You have tons of different ethnicities. Depending on where you live in the colony, your local government was quite different from one another. It was diverse. It was wonderful. But in this case, a man like me doing this podcast, it's very hard to generalize. I don't like to generalize because I feel like you can generalize to a point where now you're saying something that's incorrect. And I think in this case, I, I would be. As far as languages and ethnicities were, were uh, concerned, the colony was a potpourri of the world, especially by the time we enter the 1660s. To personify this phenomenon in, in one person, I'm going to give you Magdalena Volkertsen. Now, she was actually banished from the colony of New Netherland and was supposed to be sent back to the Netherlands. But as we covered in the last episode, she was a woman and she was able to, do, to elicit enough sympathy from the men on the court to not have that happen to her. But whatever she did was so bad, they wanted her literally off the continent. So Magdalena Volkertsen. Her father was from Norway. Her mother was the daughter of one of those original Walloons. And her husband was Dutch, his nickname being the Portuguese. That right there is a wonderful example of how this colony took all of those old ideas and just kind of melted them away very quickly. And we can kind of see uh, modern New York attitudes in that. I don't want to put too much of our modern sympathies into it, but where else in the world at this time are you going to find uh, a woman who is probably a speaker of Dutch, who has a father who's Norwegian, who has a mother who's Walloon, and who is married to a man who's called the Portuguese. Let's switch over to that topic of marriage. Because, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, and if you've read anything on New Netherland, they're a fairly secular society. Was marriage important to them? Was it something they valued? How, what were the traditions? During the time of New Netherland, by the time you have a relatively equal number of the sexes, Marriage was incredibly important. It's only in the modern era that a man or a woman of just normal standing could live by themselves, could survive by themselves. You needed a partner before the modern era. I was talking to my wife earlier this month, and she was bringing up how it'd be so hard to, to be a single person and afford the rent in uh, almost any part of New York State. And I thought about it for a while, and I said to her, but isn't it, it's, it's pretty remarkable that a single person could still, in theory at least, afford that rent with some struggling. Because before 100 years ago or so, if you weren't married, you were either living with a whole bunch of other people in a tenement or something, or you were living, man or woman, you were living with your family or extended family. 
living by yourself, being self-sufficient totally without familial support was unheard of. And that's true of New Netherland too. So marriage was very important for an economic reason. And as we saw from some court cases in the last episode, marriage was also important because if there are children in the colony, we need to know who legally the father of those children are because they are going to help provide for those children. You don't want a bunch of orphaned, or as they would have said at the time, bastard children running around with no father who could otherwise have supported them, but they're choosing to be deadbeats. Another reason marriage was important, again, economics. Let's say a man dies. Well, if he's not married or he's just seeing a woman, the legality of who gets his property and investments is up in the air. Marriage solidified where things would go in case something happened to somebody. Very important, even to this day. That being said, there wasn't a lot of stigma about sex before marriage, not compared to other colonies at this time. But there wasn't a lot of stigma there. There wasn't a lot of stigma about promising to marry somebody and moving in with them for a while. So there are court cases where a couple will move in together. They're not married, but they're, they promised they'd get married. And then after like six, seven months, the local courts will be like, okay, you, you got to get going on this. You guys got to get married already because you might pop out some kids. You get into an argument. He runs away or she runs away. And then the kid has, you know, half of a nuclear family. So moving in together while being unwed was generally accepted on the promise that a marriage proposal was coming up very soon. And so because of all these economic reasons, we see that men and women get married two, three, four times. Because if you're a woman, you have a bunch of children, and your husband dies, well, you have an estate, you have some property there, but you're missing that, that component. You're missing the male component. And so you'd quickly remarry somebody else, and he would already have some land or something. You could combine estates, and your quality of life would actually get better. And if he was a widow, your kids would be thrown in with his kids. You have, essentially, if you're a farmer, you have workers, <laughs> or a baker, or any other profession, you would have a, a small workforce that you birthed yourself. And also, in your old age, your kids are your social security. Let's talk about children for a little bit. First of all, education in New Netherland was not as thorough as in New England, but it was probably on par or a little bit better than in the southern colonies during this time. New England valued education, and the source of that is well, if you're educated, if, you're, if you can read, you can read the Bible. And as I mentioned previously, that's part of the reason why New England has such a wonderful literary tradition to hand down to us today, so we can try to understand what their mindset was. New Netherland, not so much. But there was rudimentary schooling. And in the large municipalities like New Amsterdam, even the poor children or the orphan children would receive basic education. It would be free provided through tax funds and church funds, and they would teach them spelling, reading, writing, and probably most important to the teacher, religion. Parents with any sort of means would be expected to provide some sort of funds to the school teacher, usually in the form of furs, beaver furs, or in some cases, wampum, or suant as they called it. Again, as I mentioned in our government episode, hard money was in short supply. Uh, the nations of Europe like to hold on to their coin money, their gold, their silver, and their copper coins, bronze alloys, what have you. They didn't want to see that stuff leave their shores. And so a lot of colonial uh, commerce was done in things that the Native Americans valued versus what a European in Europe would have thought to be of value. Children, of course, would be trained in the profession of their parents. Of course... You know, if you have a farm and you have 10 children, you're not going to be dividing that farm up into 10 sections. Sometimes stuff like that happened, but usually the parents would have the foresight to go, okay, we got to spread these kids out a bit, give them, give them a, a fighting chance. And so you could bind your children as indentured servants to people in other professions who needed the labor. And so they would learn the craft or trade uh, through that service. And this could be anything. These could be sailors, these could be bakers, these could be uh, metal workers. And also, if you needed to, you could just bind them to people, not for the future of a career, but just to uh, get some money for their service as a servant. So you could just simply be a maid in somebody's house. And of course, your parents would have received some sort of compensation for that. As you can imagine, there are exceedingly few 
documents on the life of a child in New Netherland. And so the general picture I get from it is that compared to the modern childhood, childhood was short, childhood was full of far less attention, and your usefulness to your family in the labor market drastically uh, shaped what your young life was going to look like. Now, what about your mother? What about gender roles in New Netherland? I've kind of dropped little bits and pieces of that, but let's, let's address it directly. Based on the court records that I've seen, uh, there's lots of lawsuits involving women. Women being witness to things, women swearing at other women, women slandering other women, uh, men yelling at women, women yelling at men. But there are also cases of women looking to collect debts and women running businesses of their dead husbands. And so it seems that the gender roles of women in New Netherland uh, generally took the shape of the gender roles in the Old Netherland. So if you go back to one of our first episodes where I talk about what was the Netherlands like during this time, uh, women had quite a bit more rights than you would see in England at this time. And if you could paint a picture with the court records and the minutes, you would see that women overall did not hold much back as far as expressing themselves. They were clearly empowered far more than we would see next door in New England and even down in Virginia. In most frontier settings, women generally were better treated and had more value than in old world settings or in settlements that have been around for a very long time. In American history, if you look at the first states that granted women the right to vote, you're looking at frontier states. Similarly, in the colony of New Netherland, if you were a woman in, let's say, the 1640s, you were in high demand because there were a lot of male fur traders in the colony and not, uh, not a large population of free and unmarried women. So you were of value just being who you are. Furthermore, even as the colony moved on, as we talked about before, a widowed man needed a new wife and would marry very quickly because let's say the man is a farmer. There is just too many tasks to be done. One man with a bunch of small children cannot accomplish it successfully. You need a wife. And so women had an unofficial and a social power that you don't see in many American colonies at this point in time. Now let's move on to culture for a little bit. And I've been filling in culture with every episode. So you're getting bits and pieces, but I just want to very briefly talk about, let's say you're walking around the streets of New Amsterdam or Beverwick. What would the people be doing? What do they do for fun? That kind of stuff. As we've seen, the business of the colony was by and large business. Lots of trading, lots of commerce, lots of people working very hard. Men sometimes would have three, four, five professions, often doing two or three of them at once. You could be a farmer, you could be doing some illegal fur trading, and you could have an illegal distillery, all dealing with the Native Americans. While you're doing that, you might also own part of a boat somewhere, or have some money invested in some privateering uh, activities in the Caribbean against the Spanish. And so part of their culture was their livelihood, making money, making a living, building wealth. That would have been a topic of discussion often. And as I said before, there was a lot of drinking going on. There was drinking all the time. Drinking competitions were really popular. One former director general actually set Fort Amsterdam on fire on the island of Manhattan uh, when a drinking contest got out of control and he decided to shoot off a cannon inside of the fort. Drinking would have been part of every social occasion, would have been everywhere. And at this point in time, it's no surprise, uh, among Europeans, the Dutch were considered the drunks or one of the few nationalities that uh, topped the list for the top drunks in Europe. The Dutch were way at the top of that list. One, two or three would be the Dutch. And the Danes were actually, uh, their nearby neighbors were actually way up there also. So that entire region were known for their drinking. But just to soften this stereotype a little bit, if we could go back in time to Europe, we would think they were all alcoholics. We would think they were all drunks. Every single nation would, would shock you with the amount of alcohol they would drink. And so, from our point of view, we couldn't even distinguish who the drunks were. Of course, the European population of the colony were Christian, by and large. There were minorities of Jewish folks, and we'll focus on religion probably in a future episode. And there were my, uh, minorities of Catholics, various forms of Protestantism. Officially, the colony was Dutch Reform, or at least Reform, which is Calvinist. And so all the traditional Christian holidays were celebrated, including the Dutch tradition of Pinkster, 
which we'll talk about when we get to slavery. And they did things for fun, some of which you would recognize today. They had card games. They're doing a lot of drinking. They're playing a lot of cards. They played backgammon. They, they played tic-tac. They had various forms of bowling or nine pins. And unlike more puritanical colonies to the east, there was a lot of dancing. But again, these are all generalities. And depending on where you are in the colony, there, there are parts where Swedish is the predominant language. There are parts of Long Island where English is going to be the predominant culture and probably dancing is banned in certain portions because of their Puritan beliefs. And then you could go all the way up to Fort Orange and the newer settlement of Schenectady and discover all sorts of different things going on and discover that the Mohawk Native, uh, Native Americans are living very close by. So what about these natives? If we look in the sources, we can see that as far as the downstate part of the colony is concerned, different Algonquin tribes would take their canoes and they would visit New Amsterdam and these other settlements. Usually in peace, they were allowed to trade. People would let them into their houses. And although they wouldn't be as hospitable as Native Americans were when you went to their villages, there was a openness to even people as exotic as Native Americans to a 17th century European. There are records to indicate that, especially in Fort Orange, Beverwick, Rensselaerwick, Schenectady, and down in New Amsterdam, Native Americans kind of came and went out of different areas. So if you were walking around New Amsterdam on a random day, in addition to hearing 12 different European languages, you might see a couple Native Americans hanging around. It was truly a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, even though they didn't have a concept of race yet, society and culture, and just the, just the visual of it would have been incredibly diverse. Of course, there was xenophobia on both sides. There were occasional wars with different Native American groups, especially the, the Algonquins, the Lene Lenape, uh, in the, the southern portion of the colony. And these wars would break out every five, six years. They'd be devastating. And then in the upper part of the colony, when you're dealing with the Haudenosaunee, and especially the Mohawk, there's absolutely no wars. The, the Europeans and the natives lived in peace after the Mohegan were removed from the area and the Mohawk had a monopoly on the fur trade, there was peace. There were marriages between natives and Europeans. There was all sorts of hanky-panky going on. You go a little bit further south, though, to uh, Esopus or Espis, or the five other ways you can say the name of the, this area uh, of Ulster County, New York, today. You see instead that the settlers there were less open to Native American relations, and the Native American group themselves, the Esopus tribe, they were very much uh, keeping to themselves. The records show that their near relatives, the, these other Algonquin people in the Lene Lenape, they kind of shied away from them. They didn't even like their own near relatives. And so they themselves were very xenophobic. And instead of having interrelations, they had a series of wars with one another. And the Esopus Indians ceased being a separate identity after these wars. When we get to our religious portion of our culture series. You'll hear a lot about this, but basically the religious authorities in New Netherland, they didn't try really hard to convert the natives. They're there for trade. Um, they mostly stayed out of the way of one another. And so you do whatever you want to do. The religious authorities actually were not terribly concerned with saving their souls or introducing them to Jesus. They tried a little bit, but they gave up pretty quickly. So whereas the Spanish and the English are going to try to force conversions, and the French are going to try to convert them through love or convert them through soft power. The Dutch were like, whatever. You don't want to be Christian? That's fine. In fact, in the later history, they're, they're not even going to try to convert natives. For the time, it was the most secular society in the world. And I saw a newspaper report 10, 12 years ago that uh, said that the Albany area, New York State, is the most secular area in the United States. Is that a coincidence? No, that's not a coincidence. New Netherland began this pattern of, okay, here is my public life, and inside of my private life is my religion. It does not bleed into my public life if it makes somebody else uncomfortable. But it's not all peaches and cream, because even the Iroquois and the Iroquois Confederacy, they uh, always kept the Dutch at arm's length. So we talk about these covenants, and you can, you can look up Iroquois covenants with the Dutch and later the English, but the uh, Dutch and the Native Americans always kept each other at arm's length, especially with the Haudenosaunee. So the Haudenosaunee, of course, they had the five tribes. They were the, the longhouse that stretched across central and western New York State today. And the Dutch were uh, nominally part of that longhouse, even though they weren't completely aware of it. 
but they weren't exactly in the longhouse. They were kind of just attached to it. And so the Iroquois Confederacy never considered the Dutch full members. And the reason, as I've stated before, is that the Dutch were like children to the Iroquois. There were the Iroquois customs and ways of trading and ways of, of dealing with diplomacy and politics and everything was utterly foreign to the Dutch. And the Dutch were unable to fulfill any of these roles as any adult in the Haudenosaunee would be able to do. And so they considered them unmannered children. Likewise, the Dutch saw the Iroquois as being savages. That is the word that gets translated when describing them from the Dutch. It's the word savage. Just as an example of how, uh, although peaceful, they weren't terribly close. If you look in the uh, court records of Fort Orange, there are certain times where the Mohawk will come to Fort Orange and say, hey, listen, you're Dutch, we're Mohawk, we're connected to one, other, uh, one another, we're buddies, we're, we're going to have some negotiations with the French, and we're going to need a couple of you guys to come with us to witness and help facilitate the transaction here. And the Dutch go, what? What do you want? Well, no one here does that. What are you talking about? We don't know how to do that. And the Mohawk are like, fine, we'll just do it by ourselves. A third party outside tribe being part of uh, peace negotiations or trades was a foreign idea to Europeans. Although, if you look during the Espis Wars, the Haudenosaunee did come down to the Espis tribe and were part of the peace negotiations. And so the Europeans had some, uh, some experience of this, but they probably didn't interpret 100% what was going on or that this was a usual thing. So while individual Mohawk and Dutch got along quite well, um, as a whole, the two cultures didn't quite understand one another. They understood that they needed something from one another, and they understood that up to this point, there's been peace. But that didn't stop rumors from going around. In 1650, there was a rabble around Fort Orange in Beverwick and Rensselaerwick that the Mohawk were going to descend upon the colonists and kill all of them. Of course, the Mohawk had recently, in the last couple of years, been receiving shipments of guns, officially and unofficially, from the Dutch West India Company. And so there was this irrational fear that the Mohawk were just going to slaughter everybody. It was based on nothing, and nothing ever transpi transpired. Transpired? Transpired. But it was still there. The xenophobia, still there. The paranoia, latent, popping up every now and then. But the ignorance wasn't completely on the side of the Europeans. The Haudenosaunee, they didn't understand a lot of the Dutch customs. So again, they would often ask the Dutch for certain things that the Dutch had no idea about. But the Haudenosaunee didn't realize that there were other cultures in the world that are so far different. It's not that they're ignorant children. It's just that they have different ways of getting things done. So in, in that way, the Haudenosaunee were awfully uh, condescending towards the Dutch. But of course, the Dutch were condescending towards them in certain ways. But they made it work anyway. Just one last example to illustrate this point. Megapolensis. He was a Dutch reform reverend in the colony. He gave to a Mohawk chief, he showed them a, a gold coin, a small gold coin, a small silver coin. And he said, this, this is our money. This is what we consider value. This is how we transfer wealth. The Mohawk chief said to him, you are fools to value a piece of iron so highly. And if I had such money, I would throw it in a river. While Europeans would use small little round tokens of valuable metal as a way of redistributing wealth based on services, coins. Uh, to the Native American mind, what is that small piece of metal going to do? What is it worth? Although it could be decorative, you can't make an arrowhead out of it. It's too small. You can't use it as a cutting tool. It's too small. You can't use it as an axe. It's too small. And so let's bring it to the modern day. If you had a, a, a standard American dime in your hand, let's say that was made out of gold. At the gold price right now, uh, at the time of recording this, recording this, that coin would probably be worth around $180. A, a, a piece of gold the size of a dime, $180. Now that sounds crazy today in the culture we live in, where it is worth $180. To a Native American 400 years ago, it would have blown their mind. Uh, well, you'd have to explain, well, $180 could buy you this amount of food. And, or, or it would get you these weapons or this type of clothing in this amount. It would blow their mind. They'd say, this tiny piece of metal that can't be shaped or used for anything functional? 
And even today, it's a little absurd. It's a, honestly, it's a little absurd. I, I like coins quite a bit. But the idea that a, a small little dime-sized chunk of gold could be worth $180 is a little crazy if you think about it. But then again, so is modern things like Bitcoin, right? At the end of the day, we still need things to hold and transfer value. So there we are. But now I'm going to get onto a subject that is not often talked about. It's starting to become a, uh, a popular thing of interest. And it's a, it's a huge subject, sensitive subject. It brings you right up to the modern day with all the, the stuff going on in the news, back and forth. Slavery. The enslavement of Africans, to be specific. If you remember, very early on in this podcast, the first immigrant to the island of Manhattan was an escaped slave off of one of these trading boats shortly after uh, Henry Hudson's voyage. Now, slavery was officially illegal in the Netherlands, but in every colony belonging to every colonial power, there was a labor shortage. Native Americans were dying off from pandemics, diseases raging from the old world to the new world, reducing populations 50 to 90% over decades. Again and again and again, waves would come through, wipe out Native American populations. Also, Native American workers, if treated badly, could just disappear into what the Europeans considered the wild. And so they weren't reliable workers to a European because you couldn't drive them very hard before they just went, you know what, I'm done, I don't need this, I'm going home. In many colonies, including New Netherland, it was hard to get labor over to the New World. And in some climates, uh, European labor wasn't very useful. If you stick me on a Caribbean island and tell me I need to work the sugar cane, I'm going to die. At a time before sunscreen, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die pretty quick. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, might make it, I might make it a couple weeks, and then I will just waste away. It's too much sun. And so African slavery became an economic necessity to maintain these colonial endeavors. And people back in Europe didn't have to see this and generally turned a blind eye. And so you can go ahead and judge them if you want. But let me ask you this. Who made your shoes? Who made the shirt you're wearing right now? Who, who found the precious, uh, the precious rare earth minerals that went into making your cell phone? And what conditions by which did they work under to uh, complete these tasks? Yeah, yeah, right? Now you're feeling a little guilty. You get a little bit of that cognitive dissonance to, to live with yourself. We all have to do that. In 100 years from now, 200 years from now, you're going to be judged just like we're about to judge these folks. So go ahead and judge these folks. Just realize they're coming for you eventually too. And that's just the way it is. So I'm ready for it. At first, the Dutch West India Company wasn't terribly involved in the slave trade, especially when it came to its more northerly possessions. There just wasn't any business going on involving African slaves. The first slaves in the colony seem to have been purchased from privateers, people who plundered Spanish ships. In addition to getting gold and silver, you would also get humans. And those humans would be sold. But the number of slaves in New Netherland were extremely few up until the very end. And, and then things start to change a little bit. But New England had very few slaves during this time. Of course, the southern colonies had a very large amount because of the economics of where they were. But we see the first mention of a slave in New Netherland by that same reverend, Reverend Michelanius, Michelanius, I don't know how to say his name. 1628 is the first time we mention one, uh, first time we see a mention of one single slave. Already that's too many, but this is the record. 1628, one slave. And these early slaves would be in the service of the company. The Dutch West India Company had a couple slaves to facilitate things getting done on the island of Manhattan especially. Fort Amsterdam on the island of Manhattan will be built using slave labor. Wall Street today used to actually be a Dutch wall built to keep out the English, was built in part by slave labor. But the Dutch West India Company didn't require a lot of slaves in New Netherland to facilitate the fur trade. They just, what use would a slave be in a fur trading situation? Uh, slaves are useful for heavy labor that free people don't want to do. So we don't even have to talk about ethnicities, anything like that. If you go back through history, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, slaves by and large did the undesirable work. And for the Dutch West India Company, the undesirable work would be in their Caribbean possessions and in Dutch Brazil, 
making those cash crops, working in those terrible conditions uh, to make money for people back in the Netherlands who had little awareness on how exactly that money was made. Or if they did have an awareness, they chose to block it out. So this is American slavery of Africans. But the, the type of slavery, the nature of it, was different than the American chattel slavery that you saw in the South. Uh, the, the one that you, you typically see in movies and you read about in textbooks. Slavery in New Netherland took on a, a different nature. And we're going to talk about that because it only exists until the colony itself is taken over. And then it's overridden by these forms of slavery that you are more familiar with. The eminent source on slavery in New Netherland, and just maybe the only contemporary source right now putting out a lot of it, really focusing on this one specific subject, is Jerome de Wolf. I believe I said his name right. He uh, put out a book, The Pinkster King and the King of the Congo, and uh, a couple papers. And you can find a great interview with him on Russell Shorto's podcast, uh, New, New Netherland Proches, I believe it's called, which just basically means New Netherland Chats. Uh, you can find that podcast. A couple years ago, he did an interview with Jerome DeWolf. It was fascinating. And so that's what led me down this avenue. So any anything I say after this point, let's just attribute to that man. One way that New Netherlands slavery was different is the slaves themselves. They came from different portions of Africa, and they were fed through Spanish and Portuguese culture before getting to New Netherland. Because the Dutch West India Company would inherit this slave trade from... Uh, the Iberian powers. And so many slaves in New Netherland have Spanish and Portuguese names. And in fact, when these slaves get to New Netherland in a very small amount for most of the history, and then in the 1660s in much larger amounts, uh, many of them have already been baptized Catholic. And so you have African slaves arriving in a colony, already having some European culture installed into them, and some of them are already Christian. And not just baptized Christian, like they've been practicing Catholicism, some of these unfortunate people. And so this would be quite a bit different than the slaves a hundred years from now that would be shipped to the southern colonies. Whereas in the southern colonies, uh, the ships coming over, they would make sure that people who, uh, the slaves that spoke the same languages would be jumbled up. They didn't want any sort of unity there. The slaves in New Netherland probably had some familiarity with Spanish or Portuguese. And so they were able to communicate with each other and organize with one, one another in a language that most of New Netherland wouldn't understand. Jerome de Wolf argues, just like how in these Catholic countries there were brotherhoods among professions, that the African slaves who came to New Netherland by way of Spain and uh, Portugal possessions also had brotherhoods. And he references scant little mentions of there being captains of the Negroes among the Dutch African slaves. And he's also dug up other evidence of, of cooperation where you wouldn't see this in any other setup. Uh, groups of African slaves in New Netherland acting together, petitioning together. And again, the fact that some of them appear to have assumed a position of a captain. And he argues that part of the reason why slavery, as we're going to find out, was a little different in New Netherland than in the English colonies, is that because of these organizations, because they could communicate with each other and they had some sort of brotherhood, they were able to get a little more concessions from the Dutch uh, West India Company and from the director generals of the colony than you would see in, let's say, colonial Virginia. First of all, if they were already baptized into the Catholic tradition, the Dutch Reformed Church already looked at them as different than an African slave coming off a boat in a southern English colony from some uh, tradition other than uh, Christian background. And so they said, wow, this, this guy has already been indoctrinated into some form of our religion. It's, it's a, it, they're baptized. It's not exactly correct, but it's, it's something. So we can't just leave them high and dry. And so you see that there is a minority of the African population that actually participates in the Dutch Reformed Church. And the children of these slaves would receive basic education. All education in New Netherland was basic, but they received some language education and especially religious education. So they're educating their slave population, which is something uh, many other nearby places would be outraged by. And since the colony was not terribly agricultural until towards the very end, 
the slaves were not working out in the fields picking cotton like you would see in colonial Virginia or in the Carolinas. Instead, the slaves would be doing undesirable work like we mentioned before, a lot of the sanitation, a lot of the heavy lifting and building and pushing and pulling and traveling. But African slaves in New Netherland would also be tasked with jobs that you wouldn't normally associate with slave labor and you wouldn't think they would allow slaves to do. One thing would be uh, punishments. So if you, let's say you are a young Dutch man and you're on the streets of New Amsterdam, you're in one of the many pubs there, to use a modern word, and uh, you get into a fight, you stab a guy, you hurt him, you don't kill him, you hurt him though, you provide restitution. But the court might actually say, you know what, you're going to receive 10 lashings. Well, often it would be the company slaves that would provide the lashings. So picture that in your head. A slave would be whipping a free Dutch man. Now you might be saying to yourself, why would they give a slave that position that seems to be a position of power? Well, uh, there's a couple reasons if you think about it. First of all, based on the culture at the time, your punishment was more severe if it was inflicted on you by an enslaved African. It was more demeaning. That's how they would have thought of it at the time. Furthermore, this is a small colony. Uh, you know, at, at certain times, everybody's going to know everybody. And towards the end, it's still small enough that you're going to run into these people. Imagine being the guy who had to do the lashings uh, on a man who is violent, an alcoholic, and commits stabbings, as we've already established. Do you want to run into that guy later? On some level, giving the slave the task of doing the whipping or other punishments, it kept uh, resentment among the free population at a minimum. On that same note, Rensselaerwick's hangman was African. I don't have written down here whether he was free or a slave, but either way, they delegated to the African population certain jobs that seemed to be positions of power or authority, but in reality could just be a source of tension among the European population. Along the same theme of punishments, if you weren't uh, being punished by an African slave, sometimes your punishment would be working with the African slaves, doing the type of labor that, again, you couldn't pay people to do. There are also references to the Dutch population getting into entanglements with the native population. And sometimes they would have solutions like, well, let's, let's get our Negroes together and give them pikes, and we can all go off together and uh, engage with the Native Americans. Or we can just send off the Negroes to engage with the Native Americans. And so, again, very unusual tasks for a slave population that you would normally think about working out in fields while being overseen by people with guns. Instead, we see the Dutch at times are arming African slaves or giving them, uh, you know, whips to whip white Europeans with. It's, it's an unusual type of slavery for our, our modern mind and our modern conceptions of what slavery was. There are even times within the colony when slaves were used to back up the sheriff, as the Dutch called them, the shout and the sheppens. I believe I'm saying that right. It might be scout and skeppens, but I think it's shout and sheppens. So sometimes you would have your sheriff, you'd have your deputies, and if they needed more muscle, they would use African slaves. Now that is a profound amount of trust to put into a population that you are holding against their will and forcing to do things. Now, as the American South developed you will see that there are, in cities, there are going to be hired watchmen to make sure that the African population isn't out at night. There are going to be militias formed. There are going to be state organizations put into place to ensure that the African enslaved population is in their place. But here we are in New Netherland, and they're the backup guys. They're, they're, they're the heat that you call in when the sheriffs and the deputies are overwhelmed. You call in the slaves. Now, traditional historians would say, well, the slavery was different in New Netherlands because of the economic pressures, because of the Dutch culture, because of the environment. They weren't heavy on cash crops. These weren't English slave owners, so things were different. But people like Jerome DeWolf, wonderful, wonderful researcher, I believe he's a historian officially, or an anthropologist, doesn't matter. They say, well, again, the slaves that came over were different. They came through different avenues than the Africans who ended up in the American South. And again, they had this Spanish-Portuguese background. They had some knowledge of 
Christian religion, and they had probably some organization among themselves. That's what DeWolf argued. And because of this, we can see hints in the record where uh, groups of Africans in New Netherland police themselves. And we can see records where they are petitioning for their freedom or concessions or some something better than what they have. They were able to organize themselves in such a way that they slowly were able to seek greater and greater freedoms. In fact, by the end of New Netherland, 20% of the African population in the colony were free Africans. Free meaning not enslaved, but there would still be restrictions on them more than the European population, even the minority Jewish population or Lutheran population would ever have to face. Uh, slaves could obtain what was called a half freedom, and they would owe the company a, an extra tax every year. But after earning this half freedom, they could travel about to certain places, they could own land, they could marry. The criminal justice system we talked about how the, the slaves were used in the criminal justice system. But as far as it applied to the African population, uh, considering it was the 17th century, it was pretty, pretty fair. Um, I, I hesitate to use the word fair. It wasn't as bad as anywhere else in the various American colonies at the time. In fact, in the entire history of New Netherland, there is only one uh, record of an execution of an African. And this happened to be in a, a certain case where other Africans brought the accusations to the attention of the authorities. So other Africans were saying, hey, something bad happened. And a man was executed. His name was Manuel Congo. Again, you can see the Spanish and Spanish and uh, Portuguese influence. He was executed for sodomizing a 10-year-old boy. And so 17th century... This is what happens when you sodomize a 10-year-old boy. Justice served. Now, it's interesting to note again, this, this accusation came from his own community. They were witness to what happened. And this was something that they wanted to see happen. And so again, the only execution of an African in the entire history of the colony. And it was, by 17th century standards, more than justifiable. And so the free African population experienced a... A certain amount of tolerance, but they were never treated as equal to any other group in the colony. That would be far too much to say. Far too much credit to be given to Dutch tolerance at the time. Uh, we can see in the contract records that Africans who were bound to do a contract often received far, far worse terms than Europeans who were bound to a contract. These Europeans would be, like I said earlier, the children of uh, not-so-well-to-do folks that would be bound to somebody who had a little more money uh, to support the kid. As early as 1643, we see free Africans owning land in New Amsterdam, the future New York City. We see entire African neighborhoods. We see biracial neighborhoods. We see biracial marriages. New York City, again, is this incredible melting pot early on, even before it was called New York City. And so we see this uh, mixture of cultures and people, much like we saw in our episode involving Schenectady with the uh, Europeans and the Native Americans. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church would baptize mulatto children, to use an antiquated term, but a mixed child. They didn't seem to discriminate. Oh, is this a European? Is this an African? There are records of white owners of land and property and buildings in New Amsterdam renting out spaces to for African celebrations. So the two groups did do business with one another. There's even records of biracial parties and bars you could go to, taverns you could go to that would welcome Europeans and Africans and any mixture therein. Of course, this little relative haven for free Africans in New Amsterdam would be relegated to its own little section. And so I don't want you to think this is some sort of paradise for free Africans in the Americas. There were just little pockets in the colony of New Netherland where African people could have some sense of feeling valued. But two things happen that kind of changed the flow and the direction slavery was taking in New Netherland. First of all, Peter Stuyvesant becomes director general. He, of course, was the director of the ABC Islands, and he had spent some time in Dutch Brazil, and he had a, a lot of experience with slavery, and he himself was a slave owner. He would own as many as 40 slaves eventually on the island of Manhattan. Terrible thing. But based on his background, 
He knew a lot about slavery. He knew a lot about the slave trade. He knew a lot about the Dutch West India Company's vested interest in slavery. And he sought to bring more slaves to New Netherland. He saw it as a way of growing the colony. And the Dutch West India Company itself, in the later years of New Netherland, saw their New World possessions withering away, where they had used slave labor, and decided to double down on their connections to African kingdoms in which they, the slaves originally came. And so the shift uh, became less on the cash crops they could produce with slave labor on dealing in slaves themselves. And so in the 1660s, right before the end of New Netherland, we see a rapid rise in the amount of slaves in the colony. But this process would come to a quick halt with the English takeover of New Netherland. <gasps> I said it. I haven't talked about this yet up to this point. But yes, New Netherland's not around today. Why is that? Because eventually the English take over. And then everything changes a little bit. While the private owners of African slaves in the Dutch community, they, they were small farmers, typically. Usually the, the merchants didn't own slaves. If they did, they had one house slave. The small farmers would have a very small amount of slaves. And being a small farmer with less resources, they lived very closely with their slaves. They often had the same religion and same traditions. And so we see in the Dutch community and the Dutch slave community in New Netherland that the uh, holiday of Pinkster became popular, which is a holiday that you're not going to find among African-Americans enslaved in the American South. It's, it's, uh, it's a sign of the Dutch influence, and the Pinkster traditions would continue on for a very long time until the uh, state of New York and the authorities therein slowly snuff it out. And so after the English takeover, the English for a century or more afterward would note how, how strange the Dutch were with their slaves, how different the Dutch slaves of African descent were from those owned by the English. They were oddly close to one another and held to customs and traditions that had no resemblance to uh, the relationship between English slave owners and their African slaves. But Jerome DeWolf and others, they argue that because of the English takeover, slaves started coming in from different parts of Africa through different means, and they were governed in different ways. And so this this strange relationship between the Dutch and their slaves uh, were, were slowly melting away. And that's why it's so hard to talk about it, and there's so few sources. Because once the English come in, and they start importing their slaves and instituting their traditions, the old ways, everything we've been talking about, melts away. And it's difficult to even talk about the African-American culture in New Netherland because it was overwhelmed after the English takeover by Africans being brought in by the English. And those Africans, of course, are from different places, different traditions, different everything. Again, Africa is a huge continent. Hundreds of different languages are spoken across Africa, maybe thousands, I don't know. But whatever New Netherland was, whatever the slaves in New Netherland was, whatever the African-American free population experience was, it all gets washed away by the English takeover. But here's a dirty little secret you don't hear very often in a social studies class in New York State. New York didn't become a free state. Uh, we normally think of, you know, in our U.S. history courses, we think of the Civil War and there were the free states and the slave states, the North versus the South, and New York was in the North. New York was in the right. New York was free. Only very recently. It wasn't until about 1827-28 that New York abolished slavery. 1827-28. The 1820s. Meaning at the time of the Civil War, there were still people alive, relatively young, slightly below middle age, living in New York State who remember slavery in New York State. So that is the worst legacy of the Dutch in the colony of New Netherland, is the fact that they introduced slavery to the area. And you could say, well, the English had slaves too. But if you look back into the records, the abolition effort in New York State, one of the factions that was pro-slavery right up to the very end were these well-to-do rural Dutch farmers who owned these slaves. So yes, even after the English takeover, the Dutch in the colony, some of them anyway, right to the bitter end, were uh, part of the continuing problem 
of perpetuating this terrible institution. So history is not all sugar plums and rainbows. There is a dark side here. And if you're sitting at home and you're mad at me because I decided to talk about the horrors of slavery, I don't know what to tell you. But I will tell you this. This is by far on the record the episode of the podcast where I've done the most rambling. The episode of the podcast where I've said um the most times. The episode of the podcast where I say the word so the most times, which I'm trying to keep myself from doing. So, on that note, I would like to thank you for listening to well over an hour of me meandering through this miscellaneous potpourri of the culture of New Netherland. Please like our Facebook page, which I never mention. Uh, it's got a couple thousand fans. It's, it's on there. You can see updates from me. I would appreciate it. Please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to give us less than a five-star review, don't review it at all. Send me a message. Like the Facebook page. Send me a message. Tell me why I suck. I can change. I'm, 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 I'm a young man. I'm capable of change. I'm relatively smart. You know, I can put my pants on. I can speak English. I can change. Give me that opportunity before you give me a four-star review or less. Please. Anyway, kudos to you for making it through this. I promise I won't do so much of this uh, nonsensical rambling in the future. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening.